explain that here in a few minutes, but I want to show you a book that we have back at the, the little bookstore back there, and it's called The Threefold Nature of Man, and it's just a, a little book, five five ninety five, but it's uh, uh, by Brother Kenneth Hagen, and um, after today's message, this will make a whole lot more sense to you, but um, this would be a really good read for you, and I think it would really minister to you, so if you are um, a, a reader, or maybe you're not a reader, but you need to be, then go check out this book, amen? That seems to be a lost art these days. You know what I mean? Just sitting down and reading a book. There's, that was a good thing when people did that. Okay, um, if you need an outline for this sermon this morning, raise your hand. And uh, the ushers will give you one. If you, if you did not get one on the way in, um, they will give you an outline to follow along with there. But we're going to be taking a look over the next few weeks at kind of one of the great mysteries of life and the Bible and that's this concept called three in one. Now, when I use the phrase three in one, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Anybody? Does anything come to your mind? Yes, the Trinity. That would be normally the first thing that comes to mind is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it's hard for our minds to fully grasp and understand the truth and, and the power behind the Trinity. We've got, you know, God manifested in three different forms, you know, unique functions of who God is, but it's all one. And so, man, it's an absolute life-changing Bible truth. But actually, we're not talking about the Trinity over the next few weeks. We're going to be talking about a different three-in-one. Um, and, and I'm going to explain that to you, but I'm serious that if you'll listen to this with an open heart and with an open mind, uh, we're going to explain some things out of the Bible that could definitely be life-changing. It could be the teaching or, or the truth that you need from the Bible to push you to the next level, to help you to overcome things that have maybe held you back for a long time. So I really want you to get this. So let's give God our complete attention for a few minutes today and watch what he's going to do in your life. Let's go ahead and open in prayer and we're going to dig in. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you so much that we have a church to worship you in, Lord, that we're surrounded by an amazing family of believers, Lord, that, that we're just here for each other, God, and that, that means so much. But, Lord, I pray today that as we open our hearts and our minds to your word, you'll speak to each person here. You know what each of us is facing as an individual, and, and you alone have the answers and the, and the power that it's going to take to get us where we need to be. So, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, we'll, we'll sit here with open hearts and open minds today to receive from you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. All right, let's go. Who's ready? All right, here we go. Number one today is this, is that people are three-part beings. People are three-part beings as well. And you may not understand that, but we're going to break it down just a little bit for you here. And you will understand yourself better, and you'll understand other people better if you can get this truth. Now, the truth is, a person is a three-part being, but you only see one of those parts. You see your body, okay? So so that's that's the part that you can see. So most people, you know, they look around and, and they're like, oh, this is the real me here. Well... That's part of you, but there's more to you than meets the eye. There's more to you than what can be seen with the physical eye. And so let me show you something here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. And amen. I believe God is going to get something over to you today. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Amen. Amen. Who's glad to be at church today? Oh, man. 
Isn't it so much better than being, you know, in the best jail in California? I mean, you know, it's the best than being in the best hospital or the best whatever. It's so much better to be right here with your family. First Thessalonians 5, verse 23, and it says, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus comes again. And so you notice right here that the Apostle Paul pointed out three different parts of a human being. And so a person is a spirit, soul, and body. You are a threefold being, whether you realize that or not. Now, you know, and and this isn't just one little, you know, verse that we've cherry-picked out of the Bible to try. There's tons of verses where it breaks down spirit, soul, and body. You can even look in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, God told the Jewish people, Now you must serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And if you know very much about the Bible, you know that the heart, when the Bible's talking about the heart, that's referring to the human spirit. That's not talking about the blood pump inside of your chest, okay? You can't believe or trust God with your physical heart anymore you can't, than you can with your foot or your ear. All right? It's talking about the human spirit. It says you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Okay? And your strength will be talking about your body. So, all throughout Scripture, it breaks the human being down into a three-part being. And so, that brings the question, why are we a three-part being? Now, get this. I'm going to drop it on you. Why? Because we are made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1:26. God is a three-part being, Father, Son, Spirit. We're made in the image of God, and He broke us down into three parts, Spirit, Soul, and Body. Now, a lot of people don't know the difference, but most people get so there's a difference between your, your body and your soul. But a whole lot of people don't understand that your soul and your spirit are not the same thing. They're two separate things, and Scripture shows us that and explains it. And so I want to show you this right here in Hebrews 4, verse 12. Check this out. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And, and when you understand this, when you understand that, that there's a difference between your soul and your spirit and, and your body, and, and you understand the functions of each one, it changed my life. It, it explained a whole lot of things to me, you know, about how to fight different battles in life. And, and so, man, we're just going to get into some stuff here. But look, at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. Let's get an amen on that one. Thank God that the Bible is not just some history book, some dead piece of literature. This is a living thing right here. The Word of God is alive. It is powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit. Between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Notice that this verse says it divides the difference between soul and spirit. Your soul and your spirit are two different things. 
And I never knew that until I stumbled across some of these truths. But your soul and your spirit are not the same thing. And so I know a lot of times, you know, we refer to, you know, well, another soul gets saved. And, you know, that's a fine thing to say. But technically, it's your spirit that, he, that goes to heaven when you, when you die and go to heaven, all right? Or, or, unfortunately, your spirit, you know, if you weren't saved, would go down to hell. But it's your spirit that's born again and, and you know, receives the, the life-changing power of God, all right? And so, um, you know, and, and in a lot of the translations, you know, they've translated soul and spirit to be the same thing. But in death, Definite further study there, you see that it breaks down the difference between the soul and the spirit. Now, what's the soul? Well, we're going to study that next week, so you got to come back to get that. But fortunately, this week, we're going to take a look at the other part of who you really are, and that's your body. That's the first thing that I want to study this week. I'm not talking about an anatomy lesson because I'm the wrong individual to teach that. I'm talking about what the, your flesh. The Bible talks so often about the flesh, and that's basically what we'll refer to it as today. But we're going to study this and, and see um, what happens when we let our flesh be the dominant feature of who we are. And that's a dangerous Bad situation to be in. But let's look here at uh, number two. The, the point today is this. Don't let your body dominate you. Don't let your body or your flesh dominate you. Because of the three parts of you, one of them will dominate you. And as a born-again Christian, the best thing to dominate you would be your spirit. Because your spirit has been born again and has the life of God residing on the inside of you. If you can follow your spirit, the Holy Spirit's leading on the inside of you, you'll make right choices Man, most of the time, all right, all the time, if you truly listen to your spirit, you'll make right choices. You'll you'll walk in the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. You'll walk in all these things. But when somebody lets their flesh dominate them, when they let their flesh be in control, they make a lot of really bad choices because your flesh does not usually on its own, want to do the things of God. Your flesh, if given the choice, does not normally want to go to church on Sunday. Your flesh, you know, if given the choice, doesn't want to turn off the TV just so you can go read your Bible and have a Bible study and a prayer meeting. Your body hardly ever wants to do that. Have you noticed that, you know, when, when your favorite show comes on, it's easy to just sit there. You don't really get that tired. You're, you're, you've got interest. You, your body's fine with it. You know, if you want to go do something that you're really into, maybe you play video games or, or whatever it is you do as a hobby, your body doesn't usually fight you a whole lot on that. But if you decide you're going to sit down for some prayer time with God, you're going to get up an extra hour early to read your Bible, your body the whole time is saying, I want to sleep. I want to eat. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I need to go potty. I need to, whatever it is, it's dragging you in all kinds of directions. You know, when I lived in Indiana, well, in Indiana, I worked at FedEx at the airport and it was, uh, it was, a, it was about a 45 minute drive from my house. And so I used to just listen to music on the way. And finally one day I was like, you know what? That's it. This is going to be my prayer time, man. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be so pumped up. I'm going to spend 45 minutes in prayer. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. So the first day I set out and I'm like 45 minutes of straight prayer, man. I am going to be pumped when I get there. And I mean, about 10 minutes, if that, into the drive, I'm like, wow, this, it's had to have been 
whoa, I mean, like, I'm barely out of my neighborhood right now, and I, I've run out of things. I, I was tired, I was, you know, and the whole drive there, I'm like falling asleep, and I never do that, but I'm like, in the, in the name of Jesus, you stay, you know, I never had trouble with that, but instantly, when I try to do things of God instead of listening to, you know, music or whatever, my body fought me the whole way and tried to fall asleep. Am I the only one, or has that happened to anybody else? You know, remember when Jesus, the night before he was to be betrayed, he's in the garden with the disciples and they keep falling asleep. And he keeps coming back and he said, guys, what's going on, man? Uh, you can't even stay awake and pray for an hour. What's the deal here? And he says, and Jesus said something very profound. He said, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your spirit, if you're born again, wants to do the things of God. You know what I mean? Your spirit wants to come to church. Your spirit wants to pray. It wants to read the Bible. It wants to worship God. It wants to tithe. It wants to, you know, feed the poor. It wants to forgive and walk in love and all these things. But the flesh is weak. No matter who you are, the flesh will fight you all along the way. And so we've got to get to the place where we can crucify the flesh, as the Bible says. You've got to get to the place where you say, no, you are going to stay awake. You are going to get up early and read your Bible. You are going to forgive this person. You are, whether you feel like it or not, because I am not dominated by my flesh. I am ruled by my born-again spirit, and I'm following the ways of God. And so when somebody lets their flesh dominate them, they get themselves into all kinds of trouble. So let's look here at, um, at Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, was kind enough to lay out what the Bible calls the works of the flesh. Now, I'll be honest, this is not a pretty list of things to read, but it, is, it says what happens when the flesh rules. All right, so Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 19 through 21. I'm going to read this in the New King James Version. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. And boy, this, this just isn't fun to read. But look at this. It says, now the works of the flesh, the works of the flesh are evident. Which are, and so here's the, here's the works of the flesh. It says, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Hatreds, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's a, that's a pretty difficult thing to look at right there. And those are pretty bold words by Paul. Now, notice it says those that practice such things. That doesn't mean if you've done one thing on that list, then it's over for you. You're going to hell. If you got drunk one day, that's it. No hope. No hope for you. No. It says those who practice such things. It, it, there's a major difference between committing a sin, you know, a, a time or two and getting it under the blood of Jesus and making it your lifestyle where you know this is wrong, but every single day you go out and do it and you're like, well, I know it says this, but it feels really, really good. So, you know, every day that's your lifestyle, okay? It's the difference between committing a sin and making a lifestyle of sin. And it says there that if you, if you practice this, if this is just your way of life, 
Treating people like this, fornicating all this stuff, man, that's a bad boat to be in. And it says, these are the works of the flesh. Now, some of those words on there, we don't really understand. I mean, you know what revelries are? I don't understand. And, you know, lewdness, that sounds nasty, but I'm not sure what that is exactly. You know, maybe I do, but anyway. So I want to just read this out of the NLT, that list right there, because it breaks it down into a little bit more to, you know, what we'd say in 2016. But it, here's, here's the list of the works of the flesh in the NLT. It says it's sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, putting, you know, worshiping things before God, sorcery, um, you know, there we go, getting into the works of the devil, uh, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties. And you know what that's talking about. Don't just, you know, don't don't look at me like, what are you talking about? No, we're talking about a wild party. You know, some, you know, praise God. I'm, you know, I'm not talking about you ate, ate too much birthday cake and, you know, drank some Kool-Aid and got a little. You know, we're talking about she went out and got wasted. All right. That is wrong. And, you know, again, we're not here to point fingers. But listen, we're here to help people. And it says right there, uh, you know, all these things that these are the works of the flesh. And man, your body, your flesh wants to do these things because it feels good for a few minutes. But don't let the flesh dominate you. Because listen to this. Your body does not get saved or born again. Your spirit does. Your body is not the one that gets saved or born again. That's why, you know, when we go to a funeral, the body is still laying there. It didn't go up or down. It stayed here on earth because the body doesn't get born again. The spirit does. And so the spirit either goes to heaven or goes to hell. But again, the spirit is what you need to dominate you because that is what gets born again. And your spirit, if you're born again, is going to lead you in the right direction. It'll show you. I mean, you're listening to the spirit of God. You're going to make good choices. You're going to have self-control. That's one of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. And if there's one thing that I find lacking in our day and age, it's a spirit of self-control. Man, I see people that are out of control all over the place just going nuts. And I'm like, man, what's going on here? Well, there's no self-control. And if somebody isn't truly born again on the inside, I can't really expect them to have that much self-control. They don't have something compelling them to make better choices. Now, most people know, you know, have a basic moral compass or at least a sense of right and wrong. But when you're a born again you know, when you're a born again person, your spirit has been made alive on the inside. Man, you have this extra force of power that helps you have self-control. You've got the Holy Spirit in you and you've got something that the rest of the world doesn't have. You have a monumental advantage over a non-Christian. You've got the spirit of God on the inside of you, giving you power and helping you make right choices, leading you along the way. And as I said earlier, money cannot buy that. You have something, if you're born again, that the richest, most powerful, most whatever person in the world that they would love to have, but they just don't have it. And, you know, for look no further than Hollywood. Look at all these nuts. OK, I mean, they've got money. They've got looks. They've got talent. They've got all this stuff. 
But have you seen, I mean, the majority of them, just the mess that their lives are in? I mean, it's, it's sad. I'm not making fun. It's sad to witness these rich, talented, sometimes intelligent, sometimes less intelligent individuals, you know, making such foolish choices or they're out of control doing crazy stuff. And you're like, man, it's like they've got everything. You know, couldn't they just, you know, buy their way out of that? Or couldn't they just handle that? They're so smart. They're so pretty. They're so rich. Listen. You have something sitting in your seat today on the inside of you that they would love to have, that they would love to have. But they're trusting their flesh more than the spirit of God. They're trusting in their own power. And there's only so far that your strength can take you. I don't care if you're as strong as Chuck Norris, which you're not. But if you were, okay, I don't care. You know, if you're as smart as Einstein, if you're as rich as whoever, you will eventually run into a problem that your strength, your intelligence, your looks or your money cannot get past. And when it comes to that point in time, you know, if you don't have God on the inside of you, man, you are you are in a heap of trouble. If you've always just been able to think your way out of problems, if you've always been able to buy your way out of situations or, you know, bat your pretty eyes or whatever it is, whatever it is you've always done. Listen, you will eventually run into a problem that you and your own strength cannot get through. And it's at that point that if you don't have God on the inside of you, you're going to need to call upon the name of the Lord real quick. And the good news is that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done. God makes it easy. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13, and you shall be saved. God gives everybody another chance. But the truth of the matter is this, is that your body... Most of the time does not want to do the things of God. It does not. I mean, you know, I, I have forced myself and this may sound, you know, early or not to some of you, depending on where you work. But I it took me a long time to develop this habit. I force myself out of bed at four or five every morning so I can spend time with God and the Bible and in prayer. And most of the time, even now, my body does not want to get out of bed and wants to sleep and wants to, you know, do whatever. But, you know, I've learned with this. OK, I'm not saying that I'm perfect because I'm so far from that. But I've learned in this with this particular situation to kind of pay the price for it. If that means I need to be tired all day, then I'm going to have to be that way because I'm not cutting out the spirit from speaking to my life. I'm not going to punish my spirit and my soul because my body wanted to do the wrong thing the night before. Amen. And so crucify the flesh because the flesh is not going to want to serve God. The flesh is not going to want to make the right decisions in your life. All right. Now, I want to show you a verse. This is kind of a heavy hitter. It's kind of punched me in the gut a few times. But check this out. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Now, this is a verse that I mean has just really changed my life. This is a verse, though, that it, it stepped on my toes. It's it slapped me across the face a time or two. Proverbs 25, verse 20. And I love this in the Living Bible. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. So everybody, you know, put your hard hat on, buckle up your seatbelt. This one's going to hurt. Proverbs 25, verse 28. It says this, a man without self-control is as defenseless as a city with broken down walls. A man or a woman, a person without self-control is as defenseless as a city 
with broken down walls. And if you know, you know, the, the cities in the Bible times, I mean, having a wall around your city was of utmost importance. That was your first line of defense. And so it says, if, you, if a person has no self-control, they're as defenseless as a city with broken down walls. That means the enemy can just come right in all the time and mess your life up. Self-control is one of the lines of defense that God gave us. And so to say that a Christian should practice self-control, that's not, a, that's not something that God did to be mean and, and, you know, and, and you know, put a burden on our backs or, or you know, put us under bondage. You will have self-control. No. Self-control is a gift from God. It's, it's something to protect you, not something to hurt you and restrain you and hold you back from having fun in life. Self-control is, is a gift from God to put a wall of protection around your life to, to stop a lot of things from getting in. And so if I'm able to control myself, for instance, in the way that I eat, because listen, my body, it wants to eat about five pounds of bacon every day. And wash it down with a tub of nacho cheese, all right? But if I don't have self-control, you know what I mean? If I don't have self-control, that's going to hurt me bad. That's probably going to kill me. You know what I mean? And so I can, you know, the Bible deals with our eating habits even, okay? And so I can say, well, that's mean, that's bondage, that's, you know, that's, that's putting chains on me. I, and listen, no, that's not God being mean. That's God trying to protect me from bringing harm to myself by not controlling how much that I eat. Or you could say, you know, it talks about these wild parties and drunkenness and all these everything. That's not God being mean. I know lots of people that have got seriously hurt or injured through drunkenness and going to wild parties. People have been killed and everything. That's not God being mean and saying you can't have any fun. That's God protecting you. So self-control is an absolute gift from God to protect us from the dangers that this world tries to throw at us. And so I, I look at it, you know, and there's definitely times that I don't want to have self-control. I, I just want to go out and, you know, eat a, a whole cheesecake or do whatever it is. And I'm being serious. That's not a joke. I love cheesecake. I, I got a witness on the second row. Amen. And so, dude, I could eat like a New York style cheese. I could eat one of those every day. But the bad thing is, is that would be really, really bad for me. And so I control it, even though I don't want to. My body wants to, amen. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak when it comes to cheesecake. And don't judge me because you've got something in your life, okay? You're looking at me like, that's disgusting, Pastor. Listen, I don't want to hear about what you've got, okay? So, we all have our cross to bear. My cross happens to be made out of cheesecake. So, anyway. So, uh, but a person without self-control, listen, that is a person that's defenseless. And so, listen to this. Your flesh will find excuses for not wanting to do spiritual things. Your flesh will, will find excuses for not wanting to do physical or, excuse me, spiritual things. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit ago, but it's so incredible how when, when you're just ready to get into some prayer, some word time, man, all of a sudden you're starving. All of a sudden you're, you know, you're thirsty. It's like, you know, parents, let's, let's, I always revert to parents here. Anybody else, am I the only one? Your kids have been fine and not hungry or thirsty for hours, but the second they lay down to bed, all of a sudden they're starving. Anyone? Can I get a witness? All right. Anybody else? You know, so you get them a snack. All right. And then after that, you're, you know, we sit them down. They're laying down. I'm starting to read the, you know, their, their bedtime story. 
Daddy, I'm thirsty. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, so you get them, you know, and then after that, they've got to go to the bathroom and stuff. And so, listen, I don't really think that they are. If anyone else, do you think they're just making that up so they don't have to go to, okay, yeah. So, but, but listen, they're trying to get out of what they really need to do. And your body, even as an adult, it'll try to get out of what you really need to do. It'll say, man, I don't got time for this. I don't feel good. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. I'm blah, 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 blah. And listen, you've got to learn to control that and say, no, I'm a big boy now. I'm an adult. I'm, I'm spiritually growing up. And when you can get to the place, listen to me, when you can get to the place where you can start telling your flesh no to things, you're reaching a new level of spiritual maturity. When you can tell your flesh, no, I'm not going to watch that. I'm going to go read my Bible. No, I'm not going to go out with you know everybody. I'm going to. I feel like I just need to pray. Or, or no, I'm not going to eat that. I, I've had enough. I'm full. I need to stop eating. Or no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go out with that person. I'm going to. You know, I'm not going to be in this relationship. Whatever it is, when you can start saying no to your flesh, God can start trusting you with bigger and better things. You're growing up a little bit. You're starting to grow up and move forward in your life just a little bit. And that's the whole goal. If you, you know, if you're at the same level uh, of your spiritual walk as you were, I mean, even a year ago, you know, that there's something wrong with that. You need to constantly be growing. If you're in the exact same place, if you haven't learned anything new about God or the Bible, or you haven't, you know, stretched yourself out of your comfort zone any more than you were 10 years ago, if you have not grown in 10 years, Something is wrong with that picture. You know, you know if, a, if a little kid, if they stay, you know, a baby, you know, they're 10 years old and you're still holding them like this and they haven't grown up at all. You know, I mean, I'm no doctor, but I, something's wrong with that picture. You may want to get that looked at. Something is wrong there. You may want to examine that situation. But there's a whole lot of Christians that have not grown at all. They're exactly where they were sometimes 40 or 50 years ago. They still can't forgive people. Hello. You know, that's a basic thing of Christianity is to walk in forgiveness. You know, and they still hold grudges just like they always did. They still get mad when people cut them off. They still, you know, are mean to other people and not loving and kind. And still, 50 years later, they're still just as mean as they were. And they're still holding grudges. Something is wrong with that picture. You should have moved up a little bit more. You should have advanced in that area. And in any area, okay, none of us are going to reach the level of perfection that Jesus was. But I'm going to try as hard as I can to, as I can to keep moving forward. I want to get better with my forgiveness. I want to get better with my attitude. I want to get better with gossip. I want to get better with all of these little things that, that Christians, you know, sometimes we let hold us back. We're supposed to be advancing in the faith. And if you can get to the place where your spirit can tell your flesh, no, I'm not going to do that this time. Listen, you're taking steps toward growing. And the more you grow, the, the more mature you get, God can trust you with more. You know, you can trust a 16 year old. Most of the time, you know, they can, they're at the place where they can drive a car now. They're, they're advancing. You couldn't trust a five-year-old with that. That'd be foolish. They, they just, for one, they can't reach the pedals physically. But two, you know, they're just not mature enough. They, they, they don't get the things yet, how serious it is to operate a motor vehicle. 
But when someone reaches that age of maturity, you can trust them with more. Okay, now you can drive. Now, okay, we can trust you with a job. We can trust you to, you know, stay home by yourself. We can trust you with this. I can trust, you know, they, they advance and they mature. And the more mature somebody is, the more you can trust them with. God is a loving heavenly father. But if you're still, you know, you know, pooping your pants like you did when you were a baby, God can't trust you to go out and, you know, witness to the masses. God's not going to give you some, you know, evangelistic ministry if he can't even trust you, you know, to be kind to your own wife or to or to treat your own. You know, if God can't even get you to do these basic things, if you're at this level, God can't trust you with more. And I want God to be able to trust me with more. I want God to be able to say, I've got somebody in Barstow that needs reached. All right, Dave Samples, he, he, can, he can handle this. He, he's mature enough. He can go speak to this person. He can go, you know, their situation without judging them and just, and just speak to their hearts. I can trust him. He's at a good level now. And I want, you know, that's my goal is for God to be able to use me and trust me and, 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 and give me things to help other people. But if, if I'm stuck at the same level and my body dominates me every day and my body just tells me what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go, how I'm going to act, I'm going to stay up, you know, too late, whatever, man. Listen to me. God's not going to be able to move me to the next level in life. And I don't want to, you know, die a, a 90-year-old man that never moved to the next level of Christianity. God has better for that for me, and I want to get there. And so that brings us to number three, and it's this. When you learn to control your flesh, God can use you. When you learn to control the flesh, God can use you. Now, in, in all honesty here, don't lie, okay? God's in the building. Who wants to be used by God? I mean, I seriously, I want to be used by God. I want to go to Nicaragua and pray for a deaf person and see him get healed. That would be stinking awesome. I want to see stuff like that. Why? So people will think I'm cool? Absolutely not. I want to see a deaf person get healed. I want to see somebody that's miserable get set free from their misery. I want God to be able to, I mean, I want God to be able to bring money into my life. Why? So I can be rich and buy. No. Wouldn't it be awesome to be able to go feed tons of hungry and homeless people? Wouldn't it be awesome that, you know, the times that I've had a little bit more. One thing that's so cool is to be in line at the grocery store and pay for the person behind you their groceries. Or someone's getting ready to pay and you slip your card in. Hey, I got theirs. You know, that is so awesome to be able to do. And I would love for God to be able to trust me with more money so I could bless people. But if I foolishly use the money he's given me now, he's never going to trust me with more. Why? Because I can't, I can't even handle what I've got right now. If I can't even give God 10% of my income right now, why in the world would, would I be out praying for a raise? God, can you give me more money so I can, you know, not obey you with, it, with a bigger amount? No. God needs to be able to look at me and say, I can trust this guy. If I get money into the hands of Dave Samples, he's going to give it to that family over there that really needs it. If I give him some money, if I pour some into his life, he can help these people in need. And so... I want God to be able to use me. And it's not so I can look cool and it's not so I can get any credit or glory. It's all for the glory of God and to help other people out. Because on earth, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. We're the ones, the body of Christ, that's supposed to be helping other people and doing the work of Jesus down here. Amen? Because most of the time, you don't just see Jesus walking down the street himself praying for people and cutting checks to, you know, feed people. It's, it doesn't happen. He's trusting his body on the earth to do it. And I want him to trust me. And if I can't 
let my spirit dominate my flesh, he's not going to trust me and he's not going to use me because he has no idea what I'm going to do next. If I'm just going to, you know, get mad at, at the people I'm working with, if I'm just going to, you know, whatever, he can't, if he can't trust me, he's not going to use me. And that's my prayer is to be used by God. And so I want to look at two guys here that had an incredible uh, self-control over their flesh. Two guys. And the first one is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had an insane level of self-control that, I, that most people just don't have. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. He had control over his flesh. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. Now check this out. He uses the illustration of an athlete here because you're not going to go very far in athletics if you don't have any self-control. Unless your thing is like sumo wrestling, then perchance you could get really good at it. But if, thank you, Melinda. But I mean, if you're trying to be like an Olympic sprinter or, you know, whatever, I mean, you're going to have to have some level of self-control, right? I mean, you've got you've to discipline your body. You've got to go out and practice when you don't feel like it. You've got you to watch what you eat. You've got to work out. You can't just have no self-control. And, you know, we're not going to see you at uh, the gold medal stand at the Olympics, you know, crying and, you know, everything. not going to happen to you, okay? It's going to happen to the people that have disciplined themselves for years when they did not feel like getting out of bed and running. But look at this. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, Paul said, I discipline my body like an athlete. That's strange because Paul wasn't an athlete, yet he disciplined his body like an athlete. Why? He says, I train it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So he's like, I discipline my body. I keep it under control just like an athlete does, even though I'm not an athlete, because I don't want to preach to everybody else. And then in the end, I myself am disqualified from receiving the blessings of God because I'm so out of control. And so, yes, there is a level of discipline that a Christian needs to walk in. And Paul walked in this. He had incredible self-control. And would you say that God was able to use Paul? I would say that God used Paul in a crazy big way. If Paul had been a man dominated by his flesh, you would not have the majority of the New Testament. Right? I mean, because God used him to write these books. And if he was laying out drunk in the gutter or he had been fighting with people all night long or, or you know, he had been out on a, you know, a bad adulterous relationships or whatever. Listen, God wasn't going to send him and use him. No, God used Paul and Paul if anybody ever had the chance to quit, it was Paul. I mean, you can look at 2 Corinthians, and he gives a whole list of the things that happened to him after he started preaching the gospel. He could have quit his very first month of ministry if he did not uh, let his spirit dominate him. It says he was beaten with whips. He Was it three times, five times? He received the 39 lashes that Jesus received. Paul received that three, I think it was three times. He received the, 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 the Roman whip that, that Jesus received three different times. But he didn't quit. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned, not with narcotics, but with big rocks. He was shipwrecked. He had all these things happen to him, and yet he still didn't quit. 
If you're a person dominated by your flesh, you will quit the first time one of those things happens. You'll say, I don't have to take this. That's no fair. They made fun of me for believing in Jesus. I just wore a T-shirt to work and they all made fun of me. I'm going to quit right now. Come on. I know people that quit God. They quit church. They walk away from it all over the most minuscule things. And here I see Paul. He's beaten, stoned, stabbed, shipwrecked, all these things. And he keeps getting back up. Can you imagine what his back must have looked like? Can you imagine? Isaiah says after Jesus was beaten, he was so bloody and mangled, you could not recognize that he was a human being. All you could probably see was the whites of two eyes. And that was about it. Because he was such a bloody mess. And this happened to Paul three times, but he still wouldn't quit because Paul had such self-control. And he said in 2 Timothy, he's like, right before he's getting ready to die, 2 Timothy is the last book that he wrote. He says, listen, all of this was worth it. Everything that's happened to me is worth it. If I could reach just one more person for Jesus, it's all worth it. I'd get beaten again. I'd get stoned again. I'd, I'd get shipwrecked again if I could get one more person to go to heaven and not go to hell. That's self-control right there. And I'm guessing his body didn't want to keep preaching, but his spirit knew what the right thing was. So we've got to let the spirit dominate us. Paul believed that this world is temporary. So why let this world and your flesh dominate you? You're going to be in this earth. You realize, I mean, 70, 80, 90, if you live an extremely long life, 100 years, do you realize how little amount of time that is in eternity? A hundred years, that doesn't even register on the radar of time and eternity. When you're talking about thousands and millions of years from now, your spirit will still exist either in heaven or in hell. Your time on this earth is so temporary. It's just a vapor. As Paul said, why would we not do the things of God right now? Why would we not control our bodies? We want to enjoy the things of this world. I mean, we want to enjoy nice things in this world, but don't let it dominate you because any money you make. Any great food you eat, any fun you have, it's going to be nothing and gone and forgotten about not long after you die. Listen, this is so important that you let your spirit dominate who you are. Let me show you one other thing that Paul wrote. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 18. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 18. So... There's more to you than meets the eye. You are not just a body sitting in a chair today. If that's all there is to you, then that's not much. Listen, you're more than just a body. You're more than just the flesh. There's something deeper. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18 Paul said, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Let's say amen to that. Amen. The troubles, the things that you see right now, they're small. They're not going to last very long compared to eternity. It says, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. Uh, 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 someone that's not a Christian, if you're not born again, you don't understand that. That you can fix your gaze on things that cannot be seen. How do you look at something if you can't see it? Well, if you're born again, you'd understand that. That it's your spirit looking at things that cannot be seen. 
I see things, you know, in the spirit that my, my, my body and my eyeballs, they can't see. But I know they're real because the spirit on the inside of me is real. And so Paul says, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. That makes no physical sense whatsoever. But if you're a Christian, if you're born again, that makes all the sense in the world. I'm looking at heaven, even though I can't see it, my gaze and my focus is on things above, not things right here, because anything I see right now is not going to exist very long. But heaven's going to be there forever and ever and ever. My focus is right there. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And so I want to say this today. Don't make decisions based off of what will bring immediate satisfaction. Don't make a decision based on, you know, the spur of the moment. Well, I'm just going to do this right now because this is the easy way out. No, no, that's usually the wrong way. When we let our flesh make spur of the moment decisions to take the easy way out, the easy way is usually not the right way. I don't know why that is, but typically when God asks us to do the right thing, it's usually a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder to tell the truth sometimes than it is to tell a lie. You know, it seems like, well, you know, if I lie right now, it's going to save my job. Does that make it right? No, it's never right. Does it make it right to, you know, lie to that officer that pulls you over? No, it's never right. That seems like the easy way out, but it's not the right way. The easy way is usually not the right way in our lives. I don't know why it is, but that's just the way that God has it set up. Usually the way that he asks us, I mean, you know, look at it. It says narrow is the way. That leads to life. But broad is the way that goes to destruction. It's real easy to just go down to hell, man. You just live any old way you want to. And boom, you can get to your destination without that much effort. But it says, narrows the way that leads to life. It takes a little bit of something. You've got to admit, man, I can't do this on my own. I need a savior. And you've got to accept Jesus. And when we do, we are headed to the way that leads to life. And so, listen... God wants to be able to use us. And if you always take the easy way, if you always take the path of least resistance, it's not going to turn out very good for you. And, and so, you know, I'm thinking really quick about my dad. Okay, my dad comes to my mind when I think of self-control. This man reads his Bible for hours every single day. And I'm not talking about, you know, he does it four or five days a week. The man, seven days a week. 365 days a year. I've known him for about 31 years because that's how old I am. So for at least the last 31 years, every day that I've known this man, no matter what else is going on, he was, we know, don't, you know, don't go knock on the door. Don't go mess with him. He'll get to you when he's done with God. If we're on vacation, we don't leave the hotel room until dad's had his Bible time. And you're like, well, that sounds mean. You're on vacation. You listen to me. Don't take a vacation from God because the devil is not going to take a vacation from you. Do you think the devil is going to say, oh, they're on vacation. I'll leave them alone for this week. Okay, let's just let's let them have some fun time down at Disneyland. And they're getting back on Monday. Okay, boys, demons, we'll we'll just get back to work on Monday. Take the week off. No, 
And so many people, they're like, well, I'm just going to take a little break. You know, I've been, you know, just, just back off from church just a little bit. I mean, we've been going twice a week. That's nuts. All right. You know, we, we've been serving so much. Listen, don't take a break from God. Why? Because God will take a break from you. No, because the devil will not take a break from you. And the second that you let go of God and start getting weak, man, that's prime opportunity for him to come in and boom, bring some serious damage. So don't take a vacation from God. Now, Hebrews 4.15, I'm going to show you this. The second, I told you there's two people I want to show you that have amazing self-control. It's Paul. And the second one is this guy named Jesus Christ. Anyone heard of? Okay. All right. So Hebrews 4.15, check this out. So it's real easy to say, well, yeah, Jesus had self-control, but come on, bro. That's Jesus we're talking about. He had an unfair advantage. He was Jesus. Listen to me. When Jesus came to earth, he laid down all those divine privileges, it says. He lived in a body of flesh and blood just like you do. He was born into this world through a woman. All right. So he he came into this earth and lived as a man. Look at Hebrews 4.15. It says, for we do not have a high priest that's talking about Jesus who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus, he can have sympathy. He, he can understand what it's like to be tempted with rage. He can understand what it's like to be tempted to lust after a woman or a man. Or, you know, he can understand what it's like to go through the temptations that you go through. Because when he came to this earth, it says that he was tempted in every way that you are. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm tempted in this way. Jesus was tempted that way. Absolutely. And every way that you're tempted, it says, yeah, without sin. And because, it's because he practiced this self-control. And you're like, well, but Jesus, did Jesus get tempted? Yes, he did. Remember when the devil came to him in the wilderness and said, basically said, if you just bow down to me, I'll, I'll get you out of this situation. If you just do what I say, Jesus. But every single time Jesus said, no, absolutely not. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. It is written that, that man shall live by, you know, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus was tempted yet without sin because he controlled it with the word of God. Okay. And so Jesus, Paul, all these guys, it is absolutely possible to crucify the flesh. And when we do, we're moving to the next level. We're moving on up. Oh, yeah. We're moving up to the place that God has for us. And so when you've developed a lifestyle of not letting your flesh dominate, you'll make the right choice when it counts the most. You'll make the right choice when it counts the most if you've developed a lifestyle of letting your spirit rule you. And if you've lived your life always taking the easy way out or the path of least resistance, you'll fail the biggest test. Because when things get hard, you're going to bail, man. You're going to take the easy way out. It's going to happen. If you've lived a life of taking the easy way out or the path of least resistance, well, I know this would really be the right way, but I just don't feel like it. It's a lot easier to go this way. You're going to fail the biggest test. Don't let that happen to you. Learn to take the right way. And so I want to show you one last thing today, and it's this. Luke 22, verse 41. I want to show you Jesus in an hour where he could have bailed. He could have got out of it. Luke 22, verse 41. Luke 22, verse 41. And in everything that we do, Jesus is our example. Jesus is who I want to be like. 
Luke 22, verse 41. And so here he is praying in the garden before he was going to be crucified. It says, he walked about away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And so Jesus is saying, Lord, if there's some other way, I mean, can we please do that? Because he knew what a crucifixion was. He knew what was happening the next day. He was no dummy. He saw it coming. And people in the Roman Empire knew what it was to be crucified because it happened all the time. He saw people hanging on crosses all the time. Jesus knew what was coming. And so, of course, his flesh would say, is there some other way to save the world without being massacred? But he said, nevertheless... Not my will be done, but your will be done. And look at this. Check this out. It says that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Verse 44. He prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Now, if you don't understand that, and I've said this before, but it is literally physically possible For a human being to reach such a level of stress and anxiety that the human body will literally begin sweating blood out of the pores. Seriously, it's a very rare thing. It's called hematohydrosis. But a human being can reach such a level of anxiety and stress on the inside of them that they literally begin sweating blood. And, And Jesus, listen to me. Talk about crucifying the flesh. When he was looking at this, and I mean, you're standing there shaking. You're praying, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. He sees all these faces of all these people that are doomed, man. Not only to hell, but to live in miserable, depressed, stinking lives. He sees our faces. He's shaking. He's sweating blood, man. And he's saying, no, no, not my will, but your will. We're going to do it your way. Body, you listen here right now. I'm going through with this, whether you want to or not. I am going to save the world. I am going to go through with this. Nothing's going to stop me because Kelly needs me. Johnny needs me. Jennifer's going to need me. Casey's going to need me. I am going to do this whether I feel like it or not. Talk about self-control. I know some people that won't even get up early for Jesus. I know some people won't even pull themselves out to come to church at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Yet Jesus went through this. That's crucifying the flesh when you don't feel like it. Jesus told Peter, Peter was ready to fight. The soldiers came and Peter's like, I've got the swords. Let's do this. I'm ready for a fight right now. Jesus said, Peter, put that away, man. Stop that. That's nonsense. If I wanted to right now, I could ask God for 12 legions of angels to come down and rescue me. I don't have to do this. A legion of of, of soldiers then would would be 6,000. And so if you were to say, I mean, easily, Jesus could have said right there, I could ask for about 72,000 angels to come in, kill these soldiers and pull me out of here. But I'm not going to do it. I'm not. No, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to go through with it. The flesh is so weak, but the spirit is willing. Jesus had a calling. He had a destiny. And I'm going to tell you this right now. You in here today, you have a calling. You have a destiny. And you're saying, yeah, me, Barstow, you kidding? No, you do. God has something that he wants to do in you and through you for other people. 
but you're going to have to get to a place because it's going to get uncomfortable. It's going to get to a place where you're going to have to make decisions, tell yourself no when you want to say yes. You're going to have to tell other people and things no when the flesh is saying no. This would feel so good right now. This, come on, look at this. You can do this. Oh, this would be, you're going to have to say no, I'm not going to do it. That's going to absolutely destroy my life. And if my life's destroyed, it's going to destroy other lives that God needs me to go touch. And so listen to me right now. You have a calling. You have a destiny that God has for you. The first step to getting there, of course, is receiving Jesus and having a born-again spirit. But after that, you've got to start learning to crucify the flesh and letting the spirit dominate the flesh. You are a three-part being. You're made in the image of God. He's a three-part being, and so are you. But you've got to learn to let the spirit dominate the flesh. Amen? That's what we're talking about today. Let's go ahead and stand up together. That's it.